Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. In just over a week, the 39th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Birthday Breakfast will take place at the Columbus Convention Center. I'll talk to one of the people organizing the event about its history and impact. Then we'll hear from a representative for Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. After a recent $42 million expansion, the Ronald McDonald House in Columbus is now the largest in the world. Dave James will have a conversation with Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association. And I'll finish out the hour talking with Ty Smith, one of the leaders at the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio. The 39th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Breakfast is happening in Columbus Monday, January 15th at the Columbus Convention Center. In fact, it all kicks off at 7 a.m. And today we're joined by Nanette Hodge. She's the executive director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast Committee. And that is no small feat. Welcome to Columbus Perspective, Nanette. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have a conversation with you today about this upcoming event and why it's so important in Columbus. How did the Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast event begin almost 40 years ago here in central Ohio? That's a good question. As as you may remember, Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th in 1968. And then four days later, legislation was introduced to create a national holiday. However, it was in 19. 1983 when that legislation passed. So for two years, three ladies at uh, the historic Shiloh Baptist Church, they celebrated the King holiday at the church, but they wanted to do something more than a simple meal. So that would be Mrs. LaRue Keeler, Mrs. Charlene Taylor, Mrs. Lorraine Clemens. They're all deceased now, but they talked to the uh, pastor at the time, Reverend C. Dexter Wise III, and uh, Mr. Amos Lynch Sr., and he was the editor of the popular newspaper, the Columbus Call and Post. So as a result, the first Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast began at the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Columbus. And now it has grown exponentially, hasn't it? About how many people do you expect to attend this year's breakfast? Well, we've had in the past the largest attendance uh, at the breakfast, uh, up to like 5,000, 6,000 people. But of course, the, with the pandemic happening and 2023 being the first uh, uh, in person, it's now we're expecting like 1,800 to 2,000 uh, for this year. That's still a pretty impressive crowd. Now, that brings my next question. Can anyone attend the Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast? Absolutely. All are welcome. Tickets are on sale at the King Arts Complex, which is at the 835 Mount Vernon Avenue, and they are available through Eventbrite, and you have to search 39th Annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Breakfast. Now, no tickets are sold at the door, and all tickets are non-refundable. Excellent. For someone that may be purchasing that ticket and planning to attend the event for the first time, what could they expect from the Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast? They can expect an amazing experience. We have a very talented lineup of speakers and performers, and it is a breakfast, and I'm certain people attending will enjoy the menu we've selected. So a lot of people want to be surprised, so I won't tell you uh, what that is. But with everything that's planned, we feel that everyone attending will enjoy the celebration of the legacy of Dr. King. Do you expect a lot of special guests in attendance? I know, um, you know, political um, 
entities and other notable community members have attended in the past. Is that something you're looking forward to on the 15th as well? Oh, yes. We feel everybody attending is special to us. And we do have the politicians. We have religious leaders. We have uh, leaders of the different educational institutions. You know, we just have a cross-section of people on the dais and in the audience. So we feel really fortunate that there's so many, such a cross-section of the Columbus community comes out. Indeed. And you have a very uh, noteworthy keynote speaker this year, don't you? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I had the honor and pleasure of speaking with Donnelly Abernathy yesterday, and she is enchanting. It was really mesmerizing to hear her speak about, you know, uh, Dr. King and how close her father, she's the daughter of Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who was the co-founder of the civil rights movement with Dr. King. And you could just feel the passion of both of the leaders just oozing out of her. So she is really going to be giving her message in such a way that everybody will understand what she's experienced and what what she's uh, needing to convey to everybody. What a a remarkable perspective to have on that portion of history and how we have moved forward from it than from someone who saw with her own eyes this whole thing it was, be born. It was incredible. It was, it was such an experience. I wish I had the mindset, the forethought to record her because I, afterwards I'm like, you were sitting there talking to history and she was just being who she was, very poised, very eloquent speaking. So I, everybody, if anybody who attends doesn't enjoy themselves, they didn't want to. <laughs> Simple as that. Absolutely. Is there a special overarching message that is the theme of this year's Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast in Columbus? Yes, there is. This year's theme is the moral compass for Dr. King's dream continues to point toward justice, unity, peace, and love. And I'm pleased to share that Mrs. Dorothy Alexander, who's been the vice president of the Martin Luther King Breakfast Committee, and she served as a board member for many years since it started, developed the theme. She developed a theme which comes from Dr. King's last Sunday sermon that he preached before his assassination. So Ms. Alexander shares that the theme means to her that the moral compass has not completed its final state, and we should reflect on the life of Dr. King and inspire those present to continue our efforts of invoking a moral compass until we've made his dream a reality. Indeed. Nanette, from a personal standpoint, what was it that spurred you to get involved with this event? When I was asked to consider it, I thought about, I may have mentioned earlier that I'm a playwright, and Dr. Uh, Reverend Gilliard, who was a pastor of Shiloh for so many years, he would always let my group rehearse for the different plays. And this was so supportive. And we lost him in 2022. So I said, this is for him for a payback for allowing me. Plus, when I look at Dr. King's life, to me, because I am post 39 years old, to think of a man taking such a monumental task and then leaving this earth at age 39 
and his days were spent to make us have a better life. And I just think in deference and honor of Dr. King, I owed this debt pay. And I'm really glad that I did because when I, as I said, when I think about that, and then especially after talking to Don Lee, it was just incredibly clear to me why I am doing this. It's always fascinating to hear someone in your position tell a story about what inspires them and and what you're paying tribute to. And I think that's such a, a beautiful addition to to this conversation. Um, I think it's also really noteworthy that the Columbus Martin Luther King Jr. birthday breakfast has been going on as long as Dr. Martin Luther King was alive. That's that's kind of an interesting note for this year's event. And what a great reason to go once again and and spend that day, that morning of fellowship with other people here in central Ohio. And they do, like we discussed, come from all walks of life. I know you have, you know, major national politicians and, you know, sometimes other big name celebrity types show up at this. But you also have people from the community and people who are served by social services here, sometimes people who are unhoused or, or other various things that really I love the way that it open, opens up and includes everyone in such an important event. Exactly. Well, Nanette, we are so grateful for your time today. And um, do you have anything else that you'd like to add about, about this year's Martin Luther King Breakfast? Well, we would like to thank Walmart for being our premier sponsor, as well as all of our other sponsors for partnering with us to make this breakfast a success. As the portion of the funds, they will be given to the Morehouse Scholar recipient and the King Arts Complex. That's wonderful. What a great, uh, what a great beneficiary, or a couple of beneficiaries. That's fantastic. Yes. Nanette Hodge is executive director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast Committee for Columbus, Ohio, and we are looking forward to Monday the 15th. It starts bright and early at 7 a.m. at the Columbus Convention Center, and tickets are going fast, so grab yours today while you still can. Nanette, thank you so much for joining us on Columbus Perspective. I really appreciate this time. I really appreciate this time of sharing. Uh-oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. <laughs> This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. Ryan Wilkins, he is the Chief Marketing Officer for Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. And he's a busy man these days. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. I am busy, but I like being busy. Uh, It's better than being bored, right? Exactly. Lots of things happening right now at Ronald McDonald House, I guess always is, is what we can say. And thank goodness you are there. For those who may not be as familiar... Give us a quick overview. What is it that the Ronald McDonald House here in Central Ohio does? Well, we're basically a place that helps families when their kids are sick and in the hospital. So if you just imagine if you traveled from outside of Central Ohio to get the care that's necessary for your kiddo at Nationwide Children's, uh, you would want to be as close as you could be to them, right? 
So what we do is we're right across the street from Nationwide Children's. Mom and dad can stay here. It's not going to cost them anything. Uh, they can wake up in the morning, take a shower in a room that was provided uh, to them by the community, grab a bite to eat in our kitchen where volunteers have made them a breakfast, and then walk across the street to be with their kids who are going through whatever tough situation it is that they're dealing with. Um, you know, when a kid is sick and in the hospital, it puts a lot of stress on the whole family. And uh, I like to say that we're in the business of taking away that stress. So mom and dad can focus on the health and well-being of their kids and not have to worry about all those other normal stressors that you and I are dealing with on a daily basis. Like, how am I going to get back and forth to where I'm going? How am I going to pay for it? All that stuff, we, we kind of just take that away so they can focus on the health and well-being of their kids. Earlier, you mentioned volunteers making breakfast along with doing many other things. And that's the primary reason we wanted to chat today was to talk about your need for volunteers, right? Yeah. So believe it or not, this uh, this operation, which we're a 122 guest room, Ronald McDonald House, which is essentially it's kind of like a hotel where we've got all of these guest rooms. All of the work that needs to get done is done by volunteers. So if you just imagine all the cooking, the cleaning, the housekeeping, all the special projects around the house, even a lot of the maintenance that happens in the building is being done by volunteers. Um, and these are just folks in the community who want to give generously to support families whose kids are sick and in the hospital. And uh, it, it, it's an amazing thing to watch. I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that we are able to run this entire operation totally on the backs of volunteers, people who are generously giving their time. Last year alone, we saved about $3 million uh, in the equivalent labor cost of the amount of work that volunteers did for us. So I don't say this lightly. We literally could not do what we do without volunteers. And uh, with this growth that we're going through, we need to recruit as many more volunteers as we can get. So we're looking for folks to come and join the team. So you said anything from housekeeping to cooking to maintenance, it sounds like regardless of what someone's skill set may be, you can find a way to put them to work. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody has desire and they want to come in here and help out, uh, we we will figure out a way to get them involved. Um, I like to say to people all the time that um, we're open to creative ideas too. If somebody's got a, a special talent or skill that they want to use, come on, let's let's do it. We've got uh, a lady here. Her name her name is Fran, uh, and she helps the families make banners and signs that they can hang on their doors. That's a very specific task, a very specific skill that she's got that she loves, and she comes and does that once a week for the families. So if you've got some specialized skill or or something that you love that you think could help these families, uh, reach out to us. We would love to hear those ideas. But yeah, we're really looking for that bread and butter um, folks who can help us with making sure that the rooms are ready for the families, making sure that we're getting them as many resources as we possibly can, being that, uh, that warm, smiling face at the front door when people come in. Um, and it really is a very rewarding thing to be able to do. Um, in fact, my mom uh, actually is a volunteer here every Thursday, um, and she comes in and, and she does laundry here at the house, which you can imagine, we've, you know, we've got like 20 checkouts every day. Um, there's a lot of sheets and, and bedspreads and uh, towels to be cleaning, and 
um, that's what she does. A job for everyone. We're talking to Ryan Wilkins, the chief marketing officer for Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. And we're talking about volunteer opportunities, which are plentiful there. Ryan, if someone would like to learn more or perhaps uh, register to be a volunteer or even inquire about perhaps a, uh, a company outing to, I'm sure you, you do that with a lot of corporations and things, have people come in for team building and do, do volunteering. Where do they find all that information? Yeah, it's really simple to find on our website. Um, you can find us by simply Googling Ronald McDonald House Columbus, um, or if you go to rmhc-centralohio.org, we've got all kinds of information there about our volunteer opportunities. And you'll see on the volunteer tab of our website that, like you said, there are corporate uh, opportunities, there are individual opportunities. There are things that you can do with your kids. We've got blanket making that a lot of folks in the community do. And then we give a blanket to every family when they check in. Um, You can make snack packs at home and bring them in. So you can even volunteer remotely. Um, We've got a whole section that talks about ways that you can get involved from home or from your remote office. So through our website, there's, uh, there's a great deal of information there. And, you know, honestly, if, you, if you're if you driving by the Ronald McDonald House and you want to learn more, you're welcome to come in and, and just stop at the front desk. Let us know that you're interested in becoming a volunteer, and we'd be happy to come out and, and uh, talk to you. What else would you like us to know about Ronald McDonald House before we wrap up? Well, we are completely reliant upon the generosity of people in the community. Uh, so, you know, whether it be a, a local corporation, uh, a service organization, a school, a church, doesn't matter what it is, what, whatever organization that you are tied to can make a difference here at the Ronald McDonald House. Like we were talking about before, volunteerism is vital to the ongoing operation of our mission. Um, in addition, we are always looking for financial contributions that can help us to serve these families. It costs us about $100 per room per night to operate the Ronald McDonald House here in Columbus. And we raise all of that from generous donations from the community. So if uh, if you have resources and you're looking for a worthy cause to support, please consider supporting Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. We need your support. It makes a big difference for these families. And we sincerely appreciate uh, everything that folks do in this community. This is, I tell people all the time, this has got to be the most generous community in the world. There's, there's, there might be some that are as generous, but there's none that are more. Uh, it's an amazing thing to see how the, this community wraps its arms around these families here at the Ronald McDonald House. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. The YMCA is just a starting line. For the true self blooms only when we find our purpose, what makes us tick below the surface. My why is diversity in unity, a safe space in my community, living with sincerity, giving every day my everything. With my why, I stand strong, seen and supported all along. It's a million faces in a mirror and everyone belongs. Find your why. Learn more at YMCA.org for a better us.
Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. You're listening to Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Scott DeMauro, who is the president of the Ohio Education Association. How are you doing? Doing well, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Ohio Education Association. The OEA represents nearly 120,000 educators from across the state. We have members in all 88 counties. Uh, our members are teachers in our pre-K through 12 schools, uh, higher education faculty members. Uh, we also represent a lot of education support professionals like bus drivers and school secretaries, food service workers, you know, all the adults who make education possible for our students. And between being president and vice president, you've been there a decade now, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my hair's a little grayer than when I uh, started. Uh, my, my background, I'm a, I'm a high school social studies teacher, spent most of my career teaching in the Worthington schools outside of Columbus. Uh, but, yeah, this is my, uh, my fifth year as president of OEA, and, and uh, I've been a full-time officer for about 10 years. That's great. And so uh, before we get into some of the specifics about what OEA is uh, looking at these days, obviously this is split down the middle by the pandemic, which changed everything in the world. But looking back on it, how do you view OEA and its role? Has it changed dramatically in the last 10, 12 years? Yeah, I think the, the challenges have definitely changed. Uh, and the pandemic was, was something that none of us ever could have predicted, uh, introduced all kinds of uh, you know, new issues into the education system. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, I think our mission uh, has been the same, and it's, and it's really about two things. It's about advocating uh, for our members, uh, you know, and that means the, their working conditions, uh, advocating for, you know, competitive pay in order to attract and retain uh, caring, qualified people in our classrooms, uh, and making sure that educators have the dignity and the respect and the support they need uh, in order to do the important work they do with students. Uh, but ultimately, it's about lifting up public education and the success of kids. You know, close to 90% of Ohio students attend public schools. Uh, the vast majority of those are served by our members. And, and, you know, everybody I know who is in education made that decision because they wanted to make a positive difference in the lives of kids. And so all our work ultimately is focused on setting our students up for success, you know, and, and a lot of that is making sure that they have the skills so that they can see when they go to college and go into the workforce. Uh, but it's also about engaging students and learning in positive ways so that they become lifelong learners and that they contribute to our society in a positive way. Isn't it interesting how, uh, you know, when it came to constitutional funding of of schools in Ohio, that the disparities still can exist with computers and and all that sort of really important stuff. And it kind of started with not enough chairs in a way, you know. I mean, it's just amazing how everything evolves over time. And now we've got all these tools in the classroom, and yet it's still a very challenging situation. Yeah, what the, and you and I have talked about this before. The, what the pandemic did is it put a spotlight on a lot of inequities that have long existed in the system. In a lot of ways, it made it worse. Uh, and one, one good example of that is in technology. 
Uh, you know, when everything shut down in terms of in-person learning, uh, you know, those districts that had the resources uh, to be able to, to continue online learning uh, saw tremendous success. And, and while it was frustrating and while everybody was happy to get back to, to the way things were before, um, you know, they were able to, to continue that. But, but you had large stretches of our student population where they just didn't have uh, online access. They didn't have the tools that they need and the, and the resources that they needed. And the students coming from families, you know, especially families in poverty, where they didn't have the parental support that they needed, uh, really struggled as well. One, one of the, you know, and I'll, I'll just say, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen tremendous growth. Uh, there was a lot of disruption in learning, but, but by and large, uh, we've seen really significant positive gains uh, in what students are achieving now. Um, but one of the big concerns is that we still have a lot of students who are chronically absent. And if, and if students aren't with us in school, it's hard for them to learn. Talking with Scott DeMauro, he's the president of the Ohio Education Association. What about uh, new initiatives or, or things that are happening with OEA? big thing that, that we're working on right now is uh, kind of given the, the overall landscape uh, in education, and, and part of this is, you know, just recognizing that education has become increasingly politicized, uh, being used as as a wedge, wedge issue, and we're seeing a lot of culture war attacks, you know, by certain legislators, politicians, uh, and and nationally. Uh, I think this is an important opportunity for us to lift up the importance of public education and really kind of go back to the basics in helping our members, but, but more importantly, the broader community understand why public education matters. And so we launched in this past year a public education matters initiative, uh, lifting up how and why public education matters. Truly, is, public education truly is the heart of it all when it comes to uh, student success, uh, and the success of our communities at the local level and at the state level. And so uh, in doing that, uh, it, we have been engaging our members, really uh, intentionally asking them what is it that, that put them in a position where they wanted to be teachers or they wanted to go into public education? What are the big issues that they care about? Uh, and then using the feedback that we've uh, received from them uh, to really guide our, our advocacy work and then at the same time, uh, be very intentional about publicly celebrating the success of public education. Uh, we had Public Education Matters Day uh, in four different communities around the state. We, we were at the Cleveland Zoo and the Toledo Zoo and, and uh, Columbus and Cincinnati uh, for events where we brought members and families together really just to lift up and celebrate the importance of public education in Ohio. It seems like, as you mentioned, there have, have been uh, wedge issues that have uh, popped up, especially in, uh, like, uh, you know, local board races and things like that. And on the other side of that, then, when you've got this tragedy that happened involving the Tuscarawas Valley Schools with that accident and how it brings not just the community together but the entire state, you know, to realize the tragedy of that and the impact that it has on that community with the loss of students and teachers – and it, it shows that glue that you're talking about between the education system and the public. Yeah, I mean, it, we were all just absolutely heartbroken uh, when we learned the news about that terrible bus crash 
that took the lives of, by the way, two of the adults uh, who perished in that accident were OEA members, one a teacher in Tuskegee Valley, the other one a, a parent chaperone who also was a teacher at Buckeye Career Center, uh, and then, you know, three students who died in, in that uh, tragedy as well. And I think you're absolutely right, Dave. Um, that was that was one of those times where we're all reminded that, you know, the thing that, that kind of brings us together, uh, and, and we all can relate to this in our own experience growing up, is that school wasn't just a place where you, where you go uh, and you, you know, learn your lessons and, and take your tests and, and, you know, graduate, get your diploma and move on. Uh, school is a place where you really build relationships with your community. I, I still have, you know, lifelong friendships from, from my time growing up. I still am in touch with my first grade teacher. You know, that's the beauty of social media sometimes. But, it, you know, it, it is so important to understand that public education is much bigger than, you know, just what we think about happening in the classroom. And unfortunately, um, you know, going back to these, these, you know, culture war political attacks, you know, some have, have decided to try to use this again as a, as a tool for dividing people, uh, for, you know, using uh, a lot of misinformation to drive distrust between uh parents and schools and 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 a lot of it is really all about pushing a privatization agenda to take resources that that are currently going to serve the 90 percent of kids attending public schools and diverting them to other options and particularly to uh to private school and and you know for-profit charter schools and, and that's just, just really unfortunate not just for kids not just for our members but but for our communities the good news in all this that, that i will just say you know, you mentioned school boards, and, and we saw across the state this year, as was the case two years ago, you know, some, some local school board elections that were very contentious, but in 75% of the cases where our members were actively engaged and, and you know, were supporting pro-public education candidates against, you know, extremists who were you know, endorsed by national groups like Moms for Liberty, uh, the pro-public education candidates won. And, and I think that uh, is encouraging. Uh, it also points to the fact that we need to continue to stay engaged in our communities, not just in terms of what we're doing with students in the classroom, but, uh, but in the whole political process as well. That whole thing with, and I don't want to dwell on this long because I know that you've got a lot of lot more other things uh, that are pressing as well. But these wedge issues, you know, you could describe some of them as being bomb throwers who are just trying to disrupt the system. And yet there are some issues that parents truly are concerned about, or at least they're hitting a nerve with a pretty substantial number of people. And maybe putting some of those at least into the discussion is worthwhile. Yeah, no, and, and here's the thing. I hope parents will speak up and be actively engaged in their school boards and, and you know, and also volunteer in their PTA or PTO. And, and uh, as a teacher, uh, you know, I wanted, always wanted more parents to come to parent-teacher conferences and, and uh, you know, communicate with me on the best ways uh, that we could work together to serve students. Um, we've done a lot of research on this, uh, both in-state and nationally, and, and w what we find is that 
by and large, you know, the things that, that tend to get the headlines, like the book bans, that's not what parents want. That's not what parents care about. What parents really care about uh, are the same things that educators care about. And at the top of the list is ensuring that our schools are safe uh, and ensuring that our schools are conducive places of learning for all kids, uh, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of, of how students identify themselves, uh, regardless of, of family income or religion. Uh, public schools are unique, and, and what really sets public schools apart from non-public schools is that we have an obligation, we have a duty, a responsibility, uh, and we welcome it to serve every student without exception. And um, I, I think in that sense, educators and parents are completely on the same page. Talking with Scott DeMauro, he's the president of the Ohio Education Association. You mentioned that there are some challenges in public education. I know that among those are teacher retention and just simply staffing levels. Uh, that apparently is continuing to be an issue. It is. Uh, you know, right now, uh, the number of people who are choosing education as a college major uh, is about half what it was a decade ago. Uh, and, you know, in this economy, um, if young people are thinking about their futures, uh, one of the first things that they think about is where am I going to be able to make a living, you know, and, you know, certainly people are looking for an opportunity for, for fulfillment. This is where, you know, becoming a teacher, I think, is the best job in the world if you're really looking at an opportunity to make a positive difference in the lives of, of young people. Uh, but they got to pay the bills and, and put food on the table, care for their families. And uh, so we're working hard to try to address that pay gap. Right now, uh, coming out of college, educators make on average about 24% less than people with similar levels of education going into other careers. Uh, we're working hard to, to close that gap so that we can attract more qualified people into our profession. And then we have to pay attention to the working conditions in schools. Um, you know, I talked about how everybody's concerned about safety. Um, when you have uh, staff shortages, when, when it's hard to fill positions, then that has a, kind of a negative compounding effect uh, where you end up increasing workloads and stresses and pressures on everybody who is there. Uh, so I, every day I'm talking to teachers who uh, routinely have to give up their planning time, which is so important in order to, to be on top of things and, and be ready to serve their students because they have to cover somebody else's class because there aren't enough substitute teachers. Or in some cases, some extreme cases, we have uh, long-term substitutes who are filling in on a on an indefinite basis uh, because they can't fill uh, teaching positions. Um, so that's a concern, and, and I think the more unified we are uh, in advocating for improved working conditions, smaller class sizes, and a lot of it, too, is, is the resources to serve the social and emotional needs of our students. Um, yeah, of course, we all know what we need to do academically, but you know, kids have a lot of other needs, and so having social workers and uh, school counselors and school nurses uh, in our schools to help uh, lift up the needs of our students, I think, is, is important as well. So that, that whole issue of staff shortages is important. There's also a lot of different pieces to that, too, of, of providing people with 
non-traditional options for coming into the classroom. We're pretty excited about a new apprenticeship program uh, that offers people the opportunity to move into teaching uh, from other careers, particularly people that may have been serving as paraprofessionals or educational aides uh, to continue working, continue making an income, not have to drop everything to go back to school in order to get that license and, and then come back and teach. Um, so it, that is definitely something that continues to be at the top of our priority list. And when you go through issues like that with, uh, you know, additional pay for teachers and, and whatnot, then you're also back to the age-old issue of, well, that might result in more levies, more higher property taxes. And I know that the state, though, this year did increase funding for public education and also for school vouchers at the same time. Yeah, it was a good news, bad news thing for us. And, and you know, we had a, a, a number of, uh, I think, real positive things that came you know, through our bipartisan advocacy in the legislature, uh, at the top of the list on the good news side uh, was the next phase of implementing the Fair School Funding Plan. Uh, we're not there yet uh, to where we, we feel confident that it's a constitutional system where funding schools is really based on the needs of every student, uh, but we're getting closer. And we saw about a billion dollar increase in funding to public schools this year. Uh, and with that, uh, the legislature also increased the minimum teacher salary from 30000 to $35,000. Not where it needs to be, but it, about 80 districts across the state still, you know, saw a direct impact where they had to go back and renegotiate their contracts to, to raise uh, salary levels uh, for teachers. Um, we also had some successes kind of unrelated to the budget uh, we were able to advocate for an end to mandatory retention under the third grade reading guarantee. The law had been that if a student doesn't pass a particular test, uh, then the student is required to be held back in third grade. Um, and instead, uh, teachers and parents uh, and you know the other professionals in the schools look at that now as the data point uh, if retention is appropriate, and that's a team decision. They do that, but they don't have to do that under the law, and that's something that we fought hard for. Uh, we also fought successfully to get expanded access to school meals uh, for students who need them in, in our public schools. So those were some positive things. But yeah, on the, on the negative side of the ledger, we saw an unprecedented increase in private school vouchers. Um, you know, and right now, even millionaires uh, can get free money from the state in order to subsidize their decision to send their kids to private schools. And we're seeing this huge increase in voucher applications uh, with the state right now. And all indicators are that almost all of those voucher uh, applications are coming from students already attending private schools. And what's interesting is watching kind of the dynamic of all this, I don't even know that those fam a lot of those families are necessarily paying less for their private school tuition. Uh, private schools are turning around and raising tuition, and, and it's kind of a, a subsidy then, you know, by the taxpayers to the private schools that don't have any accountability back to the taxpayers. So that's a real concern, and so we're going to continue to advocate for improved accountability and, and really um, focusing our, our resources and our attention on public schools where close to 90% of our students attend. 
On the third grade reading guarantee, not making it mandatory to hold a student back who doesn't pass that, is that connected in some ways to mental health issues and things like that? Because that's obviously traumatic for a third grader if they don't move on to fourth grade with their classmates. It, it can be. You know, I was a high school teacher, but uh, I know from my own experience as a parent uh, and, and then talking to my colleagues who uh, teach at the elementary level, uh, test anxiety is a real issue, and, and there are students uh, who, you know, just based on their day-to-day performance in the classroom, you know, clearly are able to perform at grade level or even above grade level, uh, but when it comes to that, that test day, uh, for some students, you know, and again, it, it very much relates to anxiety uh, and mental health issues, some students just, just you know, freeze up. And, uh, and and it can lead to even more serious uh, concerns as far as how students feel about school and, and about learning. Um, so, yeah, this notion that um, a student's future isn't determined by a single test on a single day is something that, that we've been saying for a long time. And fortunately, we got overwhelming bipartisan support, uh, especially in the House, in order to change that. So what are some of the other uh, positive things that you're looking at going forward here, Scott, with uh, OEA and for Ohio's education system? Well, we, you know, a lot of our work is uh, organizing our members, you know, to, around elections we talked about and, and around our, our legislative advocacy, because we know that uh, as much as we don't like <laughs> this uh, or we wish it weren't true, uh, politics does have a lot to do with what happens in schools. Um, the other place that, that we're able to have success is through collective bargaining. Uh, OEA is the largest labor union in the state of Ohio, uh, and you know the way that our members, I think, directly experience the benefit of their membership is is you know in the bargaining of their contracts because because it's in those contracts that salary and health insurance benefits and things like uh, planning time and class size uh, and other working and learning conditions are determined. And we've seen some real successes this year. One, one very noteworthy success was in Youngstown. Uh, doesn't happen very often, but, but sometimes uh, in order to uh, force the issue and, and get the kinds of supports that we need, uh, our members will go on strike. And uh, we had one strike that was up in the Youngstown City Schools. In that case, what they were striking for was really a voice in their working conditions. They had a provision in their contract that was related to a legislative change from about a decade ago that uh, imposed new controls by the state on the district that gave management virtual carte blanche when it came to uh, determining almost everything other than other than salary and benefits. And uh, in order to address safety concerns, in order to address student discipline, in order to address the transfer and seniority rights and, and a whole host of other things, um, they stood strong and they got this very oppressive management rights clause removed from their contract, which now then gives the teachers of Youngstown more of a voice in their working conditions and learning conditions of their students. And we've seen across the state through uh, effective collective bargaining, um, some real gains, uh, including, you know, much more sizable increases in, in salaries than we've seen in the past. 
Scott DeMauro, uh, president of Ohio Education Association. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, one other thing, I would just put, to put the collective bargaining uh, issue in some context, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the United Auto Workers uh, strike that recently uh, settled uh, and just the historic gains that were made with the big three automakers, of course, the screen actors and the, and the screenwriters, and more unionization happening all across uh, the country, Starbucks and Amazon and, and you name it. We're at a moment in American history that I think is unique and and given how much the public, I think, is, is feeling unsettled about the economy and really frustrated about a lot of inequality that exists in the, the economy, people recognize that strong unions are the key to building up a strong middle class and, and to to really giving a voice to workers and, and to creating some sense of uh, equity in the economy. And recent surveys show that, that public support for labor unions is at the highest level since 1965. Uh, I think 71% of Americans in a recent survey uh, expressed support for unions. Uh, and that, I think, has an impact on us because when we talk about the work that we do, the important work in advocating for strong public schools and giving our teachers, our education support professionals a voice, leaning into the fact that we are in, indeed a labor union, which gives us that united voice, uh, I think puts some wind in our sails. And, and it's certainly something that gives our members who, who feel a lot of frustration some hope that together we can make things better for everybody. You know, the pandemic, it's so uh, interesting that uh, for a lot of people, for office workers, it, it actually made life easier because they spent a couple of years working from home. And yet some industries, and you know, I know I'm going to leave some out, but certainly healthcare, teachers, food service, restaurant workers, it, it made it an almost impossible situation while a lot of the rest of us saw benefits in what was happening. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, and I think, uh, you know, in looking at the whole issue of remote work uh, in an education context, uh, one thing that, that we learned through the pandemic, and this is not intended to second guess decisions that were made, you know, that were primarily driven by public health concerns. But, uh, but I think, you know, regardless of where you were at any given moment in that debate about masks and and hybrid learning and things like that, I think there's pretty strong consensus that we need kids in the classroom with teachers where they can get the support that they need to be successful. And it also is kind of, we all saw firsthand why for the most part, virtual schools just don't do very well for the vast majority of kids. You know, so we've got a lot of money that in the charter school system that goes to support these online operations and their performance is just abysmal. And I think it's because there isn't that direct personal support. It may work for a few kids, but, but for the vast majority of kids, it doesn't. So all of that said, uh, it points to the need that, that we need more people. <laughs> you know, we need good people going into education. And it really, it's, it's uh, kind of cliche, but it does take a whole village of educators, along with parents, community members, caregivers, uh, to make sure that every single one of our students is successful. Scott, if folks want more info about the Ohio Education Association and, and initiatives and things that are going on there, what do, what do they find out? Well, I encourage you to check out our website, ohea.org. 
uh, and we also have a presence on social media, of course, uh, Facebook, Twitter, or X, or whatever you want to call it, Instagram. So encourage uh, you to check us out. Great. Uh, Scott DeMauro, President, Ohio Education Association. Thanks again, as always, for your time, Scott. Young people are leaving foster care at the age of 18 with little support and few skills. The National Fund for Foster Children partners with individuals, businesses, churches, and civic groups to provide mentorship, training, and assistance to foster children. Teach a young person a new skill or help them with homework. You don't need to be a foster parent to help a foster child. To find out how you can help, go to fosterchildrenfund.org or contact us on Facebook, National Fund for Foster Children. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. The Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio is devoted to preserving and restoring balance in the lives of Native Americans through traditional, cultural, educational, family, community, and wellness-driven values and initiatives. We are joined by Ty Smith. He's the project director at NACO here in Columbus. Hi, Ty. Welcome to Columbus Perspective. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. So tell me um, a little bit about, for those who may not have heard, of the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio, or as we shorten it, NACO. Tell me about the center. Where is it? How long has it been there? And what do you do? Yeah, yeah. So we're located on the south side of town. Um, NACO's been in existence since 75, 1975, uh, founded by a wonderful woman named Selma Walker, um, in her passing, her daughter and her uh, son-in-law, Mark and Carol Welch, took over. They were the second set of hands to stand in as management. And uh, currently, my wife and I, Masami Smith, the executive director, and I, the project director, are now the third set of hands to stand in as management. And, um, you know, you read our, our mission statement, and it's, it's very broad, uh, but at the end of the day, there's really three main areas that we focus on. Uh, one is cultural preservation, restoration. Two is social development. And three is economic development uh, slash sustainability of our agency. And um, there's so much to unpack probably per each one. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we talk about culture, this is really um, the traditions and the ways and the values of our people and uh, social development is really the fact that there's there's roughly about, according to the census now, and this is the best uh, secondary data that we have to work with because Ohio is a state that has really zero infrastructure in place when compared to other places out west, which we'd often refer to as Indian country. But when we look at the census, we find that there's roughly about 35,000 um, Native Americans, Alaska Natives that live in Ohio, and that equates to roughly 0.3% of the state's population. Um, NACO serves as the only viable urban Indian center in the state, so our efforts extend basically to all corners of the state and even beyond sometimes. Um, but our work is really driven by, by the voice of the people. And back in 2011, we had a really unique opportunity to engage the community in a planning grant. And they really just underscored and, and lifted up the, um, the value of culture, but also uh, community. And so hence, you know, cultural preservation, restoration, and social development. Um, these are better reflected in um, the programs that we offer. 
And so we provide as many programs, activities, and events to really try to do our best to promote that. And um, when we talk about economic uh, development sustainability, um, oftentimes that's better referred to as NACO cuisine, or at least that's one arm of it. And NACO cuisine, if uh, people aren't out there familiar with it, is it's a food trailer that we started back in uh, 2020. And um, it's been in, actually last year was the, the tail, or this year, I should say, 2023 was uh, the third year in existence. And uh, we've had a really wonderful run. Uh, but anyway, this is an opportunity for us to share our food, our culture, um, but also to bring our own into the fold. And so still, this is, again, about culture. It's about social development, um, you know, uh, community. Um, there's, there's a variety of other things, but it's about raising awareness, visibility. Um, and so there's just some really awesome pieces to it, but ultimately too, it, it's about sustaining our agency. So the, the revenue that's generated by way of NACO cuisine does go back into, uh, uh, sustaining our agency. So it helps keep the lights on, but also, uh, helps, um, furnish, the, the, the programming that we have. So it's kind of a um, social enterprise as a part of your organization. Yeah, social enterprise would be a good way to say it. Absolutely. And again, it was uh, the community's voice that really brought this idea forward. And uh, I don't know, and, and hats off to all of our supporters, our followers, I even say our stalkers sometime out there. But uh, we have a lot of really wonderful people who have lifted us up in central Ohio. So, you know, kudos to them and you know, much thanks and gratitude for the success that we've had thus far. Now, the center itself, is that typically open or is it sort of something that you use as a building when you have programming? Is it a place where the public, the general public could go for education and things like that? We are more directing our our mission and vision work is certainly directed towards those that um, personify all that we we stand for as an urban Indian center in central Ohio. So to answer your question, no, we are not open at, you know, we do not have regular nine to five hours. Uh, Oftentimes we do a lot of our administrative work at our agency building. Uh, But then too, we also offer a variety of uh, programming and events and activities. And here and there, uh, we try to uh, make room for different um, people, you know, that are non-native, uh, but right now the best um, option that we have is by way of NACO cuisine. And it's really, I think, a nice way to engage the general public. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier about raising awareness, visibility, but also, you know, sharing um, just, you know, some of our, our wonderful cuisine that we have to offer by way of, you know, being Native American. And if someone wants to find out where they can track down that food trailer, I would imagine your website is probably a great place to start. N-A-I-C-C-O, NACO.com is the website. And there is a lot of information. I have I have been on the site for a while now. They they really, at, at this organization, I have to say that you, Ty, and, and your cohorts are doing a wonderful job of making your presence known, making your selves available, it seems, for for the community. And I find it so interesting that um, here in Ohio, 
yours is the only center of, of its nature. So do you find yourselves traveling to other parts of the state to, to further this mission? Absolutely. And, you know, coming back to, to your earlier question you were asking about, you know, are we open to the public? And to be honest with you, as a mom and pop operation, which we really are, husband and wife, it, uh, it's a very tall order at times, you know, but we're not here to talk about how hard it is, but to really, you know, reflect on the fact that it can be very rewarding at times. And uh, so our work is definitely focused on those that identify as Native American, Alaska Native. And um, yeah, it, it takes us to all corners of the state for sure. But at the same time, it's really, um, I guess it's, we're, we're geographically we're, we're we're situated in 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 a very nice spot you know being in the middle of the state but also in the capital and so it makes it so that um, i don't know we're accessible so we become um this kind of one-stop shop in a sense but uh, ultimately at the end of the day it's about really making space and creating a, a sense of home for our people and um, i want to use that too to kind of segue into one of our major campaigns that we have going right now and that's land back NACO. And we're aspiring to purchase land in the central Ohio area. And we're hoping that would be at least a minimum of 20 acres. Uh, we've been at this campaign for roughly since about 2019. And we were intending to set a mark of 250,000. And to be honest, you know, when, when one goes down this path or when as an agency and with our leadership, our board of directors, uh, board of trustees and other um, leaders in our community, we have to kind of think, well, what does is, what is a mark like 250000 mean? And anyway, we have hit that mark, actually, and we are just, like, really excited. But we are going to continue forward to fundraise. And obviously, you know, the more we can bring in, you know, the better situated we'll be to uh, hopefully buy, you know, a piece of land that's, I don't know, the highest quality possible. But anyway, Land Back NACO is a campaign. I don't want to use this time to try to, you know, uh, sell the concept of what we're doing here. But I do want to make it, you know, the point that th this is um, very important to us. And when you look at a state like Ohio, there really is, again, like I said earlier, no infrastructure in place. And that means, you know, there's this state is without um, any reservations, it's out without any um, regular, you know, types of agencies you would find, you know, in, in, in what we refer to as Indian country, like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, Indian Health Services, Bureau of Indian Education. So we become that, again, that, that piece that's trying to do our best to create that sense of home. Well, in that storyline, our people have certainly emphasized the fact that, you know, how awesome it would be to have an actual piece of land that we can call ours. So hence, you know, land back NACO, and again, you know, this isn't meant to be a commercial for, you know, trying to fundraise, but at the same time, this is very real in what we're doing. And, um, you know, I don't want to get too far off track here, but one has to take into account, too, that in a state like Ohio that, you know, forcibly, you know, removed its Native people, those that were the original Indigenous people of this area clear back in the 1840s, um, you know, what we're trying to do here, it, it becomes very important. So our intention of, is to, to write a new um, successful chapter in Native American history here in Ohio by way of uh, this new emergence of Native people who we are, um, and better yet, you know, this is our intertribal community at NACO. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1, The Fan.